Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 6th of December 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern Approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, well, we'll get straight on then with, uh, well, with Le Gavrio or whatever it's going to be called when it finally uh, appears on the shelves because Salmon um, uh is uh, being, well, it's being labelled as the first at-home treatment for COVID. Uh, it's going to be offered to patients by Christmas uh, as ministers roll out this antiviral pill to help protect the most vulnerable from the Omicron variant. Uh, that should make us feel much better. It doesn't feel me, make me feel better at all, Mike, because, uh, of course, there is no safety system. There is no pharmaco, pharmacovigilance. Uh, well, I mean, that can't, that can't be entirely correct because the MHRA has said that it's absolutely safe. There's nothing to worry about here. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, tests being done on it, on it and no problems at all. It's safe and effective at reducing the risk of hospitalization and death in people with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are at increased risk of developing severe disease, uh, according to the MHRA. Now, they said that uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, the main problem is what does uh, Montepirovir do? Is it, uh, is it uh, safe? Is it healthy? Well, this is a journal of infectious diseases, uh, and this particular paper is suggesting that uh, it causes RNA to mutate. Uh, the concerns that it might cause mutations in host cells as well. Uh, one stu this study here in animal cell cultures found mutations in cells uh, treated with uh, molnupiravir. Here's Dr. Simon Clark from the University of Reading. It's worth noting, he said, that people involved in the trial for molnupiravir were instructed to abstain from heterosexual sex or else to use contraception. Uh, while this is routine practice with some other medicines such as cancer chemotherapy, it suggests that the drug has the potential to cause birth defects uh, should anyone become pregnant. Um, and uh, well, here is, uh, uh, we mentioned the, these two articles from Forbes uh, at the time, whenever the, the uh, Molnupiravir was announced by the government in the first place. I think that was in October or so. Uh, and uh, I, I recommend people read these. So uh, the first one, part one, is supercharging new viral variants, the dangers of Molnupiravir. Uh, and also harming those who receive it, the dangers of Molnupiravir Part 2. Um, read, those, uh, read those articles and then make an informed choice should it be offered. Yeah, and people need to read these, uh, these reports because, of course, nothing coming out in the BBC and the what so-called mainstream press over the dangers of these drugs and vaccines. Uh, okay, here is the mail. Uh, Omicron, well, Omicron sorry, could uh, put as much pressure on hospitals as last winter, even if it is mild. Uh, health experts warn super mutant variant is spreading faster than the Delta in the UK. There are already 1,000 cases and it will be dominant in a month. Well, of course, this is not entirely true because if you read on, in fact, in, on the third sentence of this uh, particular article, uh, there have been only 248 official Omicron cases confirmed in the UK so far, but there are likely more than a thousand already, according to Professor Paul Hunter, an epidemiologist at the University of East Anglia. So I just thought that headline was worth highlighting because uh, it says quite clearly there are already 1,000 cases, uh, but actually there aren't. Um, so the Daily Mail uh, doing its usual job there of uh, ramping up the fear and also a super mutant variant. We've got to be uh, very careful about this super mutant variant. Um, but uh, do we? Uh, because uh, the World Health Organization uh, says no deaths reported from Omicron yet. 
uh, as the COVID variant spreads. So the, uh, certainly the South Africans very clear that uh, uh, this is not the deadly uh, variant that is being presented by uh, uh, the Europeans and particularly the United Kingdom, as we mentioned on Friday's program. Uh, so if anybody wants to uh, have a look up at what was said on Friday, uh, the, the criticism was quite stark. Um, okay, let's move on back to the mail again. Uh, we'll be wearing masks until the new year. COVID rules set to be extended to, in bid to fend off even tougher curbs amid ongoing concerns over Omicron variant. Uh, so this is the uh, danger of the day. And uh, the problem here is uh, this is really quite speculative because Boris hasn't made any announcement yet. Uh, the announcement is expected on the 18th of December. And uh, until that happens, nobody knows exactly what he's going to say. Well, a qu question for me, Mike, with this sort of article, is the article loaded? What I mean by that is the government had a little word with the Daily Mail to give it a, um, um, a preview of what's coming and the, the Daily Mail can then get out the fear. So we don't know now when the mainstream media will use that term, the old media, is reporting, is it a genuine independent report or is this something that the, the government is controlling and steering with those millions of pounds which they said they were going to use for the media budget? We've, we've no way of knowing. No. Uh, well, on the subject of crass reporting, we of course need to turn to the BBC and let's have a look at this interview from a couple of days ago with the chief executive of Pfizer, Mr Albert Burla. And uh, then we'll have a little discussion on what was uh, said in this interview. News that I was arrested by FBI, of course, I laughed. Uh, on the second news that my wife died, died with a picture of her, I was really pissed. What we had to go through, it's nothing compared to the lives that will be lost because of the rubbish that those people published. Because people will really think that my wife died because of the vaccine, and they will say, I'm not going to do it. And she's fine? She is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I think the bottom line is millions of lives were saved. What was demonstrated was the human ingenuity and the power. Do you predict that we're going to end up seeing fourth doses, fifth doses? If we have to make a guess based on everything I have seen so far, I would say that likely will be needed annual revaccinations to maintain very robust and very, very high level of protection. You expect to generate, I think, more than $35 billion in sales this year. What would you say to those who regard it as immoral to cash in during a pandemic? I believe that uh, we have saved the global economy trillions of dollars. I think it's a strong incentive for innovation for the next pandemic that people will see that if they stepped up to the game to bring something that saves lives, that saves money, there is also financial reward. We didn't do it for that but I think it's a good thing that there is a financial reward. How do you think uh, anti-vax stories that appear should best be countered? There is um, a number of people that they are afraid of the vaccine. I think for those that are just afraid, the only emotion 
of human beings that is stronger than fear is love. So I'm uh, using always this argument that the decision to get or not a vaccine is not going to influence only your health. It's going to affect the health of others, and particularly the health of the people you love the most, because they are the ones that you will interact. So take the courage to overcome your fears and do the right thing. So uh, just quite incredible. I was watching the faces of my colleagues around me in the studio as that uh, little clip was playing out. 35 billion in, in sales. They didn't do it for the profit. They did it for love. And that's uh, the message that you need to get out there. Love one another and get vaccinated. Push up those profits. I, I'm looking at uh, you at the moment, Alex, and I think this is the most obscene piece of journalism by the BBC. Fergus Walsh is the, the man interviewing. He's the BBC's medical editor. Alex, what did you think? Was not being anywhere near impartial there because he didn't ask, how do you think that stories about your product should be in, ex examined or investigated? He said, how do you think anti-vax stories should best be countered? It's clear in Fergus Walsh's mind that there is no cause to investigate claims. As for Bourla, he's evidently been mugging up on the first epistle of John, but he didn't quite get the quotation right. He's absolutely right that love is the only thing that casts out fear, for which read fear not. You can find that easily on the website, uh, ukcolumn.org, by using the search function, the magnifying glass, David Scott's speech in Edinburgh, fear not, transcribed there. But it's uh, not any old love that we need, it's perfect love that casts out fear in the Epistle of John. In other words, well-informed, mature love. Mr. Buller is suggesting a naive, ill-informed love, a surge of uh, emotion that hasn't been reasoned with, that impels people to do things that they don't know are safe. Alex, uh, thank you very much for that, because that helps focus our minds. Let's just pop this image on screen so that we can see the uh, BBC reporter here. Uh, because we, we need to ask a key question. Uh, someone coming up? Yes, it is. So we need to talk about the questions which Fergus Walsh did not ask uh, the Pfizer chief executive. He certainly didn't ask him whether uh, being qualified as a vet means that you're qualified to vaccinate the world. He didn't ask that question. He didn't ask the Pfizer CEO to explain why his vaccine is still experimental. Uh, he didn't ask Albert Berla to explain why um, he, he, sorry, that should be, he is advocating his vaccine for use on children with no child trial data and no long-term safety data for adults. He did not ask the uh, CEO if we should be testing pharmaceutical products and vaccines on children. He did not ask the Pfizer CEO to explain why double vaccinated people are still catching and spreading COVID-19. He didn't ask the Pfizer CEO to explain why we should trust his recommendations of yearly vaccinations if his product was not protecting people to date. He did not ask Albert Berla why so many pregnant women were suffering stillbirths and abortions after the vaccines. He did not ask the executive to explain why so many people were suffering paralysis and neurological problems after the vaccine. And he did not ask the Pfizer CEO, Albert Berla, to explain why 1,298,807 vaccine adverse reactions 
and 1,814 deaths have been logged under the UK MHRA yellow card system sorry, to date. And he didn't ask uh, the uh, executive anything of significance because one, it appears that the BBC reporter is ignorant of the recorded MHRA yellow card adverse reactions. And B, he works for the BBC, which has got no intention of upsetting the pharmaceutical profit-making machine. Um, but basically, I think this journalist didn't ask him anything of any significance because he was just so thrilled to be able to sit there in that room in such fine surroundings and, of course, being paid for utterly trash reporting. So, Mike, I think a truly outstanding interview by the BBC, which shows, of course, that the BBC is simply not worth uh, a penny. Well, it's not worth a fraction of a penny. And the Pfizer CEO is simply not going to tell us the truth in any shape or form. Yes, what, what else can we say? <clears throat> I think that covers it. Okay, well, let's have a look at this uh, next clip here, uh, where we look at the MHRA uh, basically discussing how the yellow card system is going to be changed. But they're also talking about yellow card itself. Let's see what the MHRA is talking about when they have a board meeting. Uh, and actually, by being very brief on the assurance items, that means we've got more time for public questions and answers, So, which is uh, a great opportunity to, uh, first of all, to welcome Rachel Bosworth. Uh, Rachel is our Director of Communications. Hello, Rachel. Um, and you've been obviously tracking the, uh, the chat on the Zoom webinar. Uh, we've also got a number of pre-submitted questions. So I suggest that we start with the pre-submitted questions from members of the public um, as uh, uh, a number of individuals took the opportunity to uh, submit questions last week. So let's start with those and then we'll come to the, uh, the questions on chat after that. So Rachel, over to you for the first question, please. Yes, thank you, Stephen. And thanks to everyone who's um, submitted questions. I think we've got a, an absolutely record number of questions this month. Uh, so first of all, uh, first question is about yellow card. And the questioner asked us how um, we could improve the public's knowledge of yellow card reporting. Okay, Alison, can I ask you to answer that? Yes, certainly, sir. Thank you very much. And thank you for this question. So it's good we've got a little bit of time because I can just give a little bit more detail. So as probably everyone is aware, public knowledge of the yellow card scheme is actually at its highest level due to the coverage it's received during the pandemic. And this results in, in high volumes of reports, not just for vaccines, but increasingly now for medicines. However, we know we can always do better and we are continuing to seek to further raise the awareness of the scheme with the public. And we continually and regularly run campaigns using the range of MHRA social media platforms, many of which which actually supported our patient organisations and also healthcare professional organisations. And so an example of that was the use of social media during World Patient Safety Day in 2021 and more recently, the annual Med Safety Week, which was just last week actually. Um, and MHRA led this campaign in collaboration with the Uppsala Monitoring Centre and over 60 regulators across the globe really working together to promote reporting of suspected side effects in their respective countries. Of course, it's very important to get that international picture because it actually um, gives, it enhances our own yellow card reports. And, and through 
such activities, we're also completely redesigning our yellow card platform, which is called Safety Connect. And as part of this program of work, we're doing a future yellow cards communication plans to promote this platform further and the, in the significant um, capabilities it gives us to connect with patients. And just lastly, a couple of other things. We have five commissioned yellow card centres, which also promote and educate reporters locally, which I think is very important. And they provide promotional material and other, other routes to engage with the local community. And of course, we work with our patient consultative forum and other, and other mechanisms for patient engagement to continue to try and raise awareness. So a package of measures, really. So that was Alison uh, Cave, the safety officer from the MHRA. And of course, she said a number of things which are remarkable and, and several things which are untrue. So it's remarkable that to warn uh, people in UK about vaccine adverse effects, which could be death, paralysis, stillbirths, inability to walk, uh, she's using social media, Mike. This is yeah, because uh, lots of people are signed up to the MHRA social media channels, aren't they? Well, I don't think so, no. no. Uh, so she's using social media. Then she said, well, of course, our job is worldwide. We're joining in with 60 other organisations, and it's very important that we get this information worldwide. What she doesn't say to the public is that when the MHRA gets the information it does for its yellow card system, it does nothing with it. So there is no investigation into the reality of vaccine adverse effects. They simply keep collecting the data and telling the public that there are no adverse reactions. And the most important thing we've learned is that the failing yellow card system is now to be changed on a dramatic scale. And let's give you the detail of that because this is the, ten uh, sorry, I've just come back here. This is the uh, tender notice. MHRA is the buyer organization uh, concept. It's Safety Connect, part of the Safety Connect program. It's a software package, strategic business change, management information technology. So the descriptor of it uh, is that uh, there's going to be added, uh, what do we describe it as, Mike? Uh, IT package bolted onto the yellow card system or the yellow card system is going to be changed. If we look at the full description here, this procurement forms part of the Safety Connect program, which is a technology-enabled strategic business change program that aims to significantly enhance the UK's vigilance capability. As part of the Safety Connect program, the MHRA looking to replace its signal detection and management information technology systems used in its pharmacovigilance and medical product vigilance that is medical devices in vitro diagnostics and hemovigilance hemo activities. So we've got a yellow card system at the moment collecting data, uh, but the MHRA says it hasn't done any analysis of these adverse reactions. Now uh, we've got a contract running that's going to change the whole of that failing system. I think this is a deliberate attempt to bury all the va vaccine adverse effects data. Okay. don't know how you'd respond to that. Don't, I don't, we don't, don't we, know. <laughs> we don't know what's coming. Indeed. So anybody who can give us more information, we'd be very grateful for. And uh, let's then have a look at what the NHS has to say uh, about vaccinations. 
get to a position of uh, pulling back from where it was two weeks ago. There was an effort made and it did still. Right, I'm sorry, sorry about that. That was the uh, wrong clip. Is that, uh, which one is it? Um, this one uh, should be uh, Amanda Pritchard, NHS. It's got that in the title. Let's see whether we can call that one up. Uh, no, I'm afraid we can't. Okay, that's, that's a shame. Well, if we were able to listen to Amanda Pritchard talking, what she would be telling you is that the NHS is going to ramp up its vaccination capability. And in order to do this, it is going to uh, have to um, ramp up the, uh, the amount of money given per vaccination. So that will include a £30 premium uh, if vaccination teams are going to the homes of vulnerable people. And this load on the NHS means that the NHS will have to shed uh, medical facilities for other cases. So it's going to be the NHS vaccination system and other people with other uh, problems are going to be pushed out of the organisation in order to enable this to come forward. And the other thing I think that the UK public should pay attention to is that the UK government is uh, looking for an increase in the amount of end of life medicine. So there's an additional £374,000 just been put forward to increase the stockpiles for end of life care medicines and what it calls COVID-19 preparedness. So uh, it's quite clear that uh, we're expecting many more people to die, but the reality is that we're seeing the deaths and the injuries in those vaccine adverse reaction data. Um, a lot of questions to be asked. This is actually the key question for the MHRA. It's a question which terrifies the organization. It is very simple and each and every one of the UK column viewers and listeners can help by asking the MHRA for a reply. What is the question? It's this, where is the quantitative risk assessment data and report, which demonstrates that the MHRA yellow card vaccine adverse reports are not the result of vaccine adverse effects. That is the simple question, which if enough people ask, we will be able to take the lid off the fact that uh, the MHRA is simply not protecting the public from vaccine adverse effects. And we'll remind people that the only place that you can go at the moment for a searchable database is actually here on the UK Column website under the yellow card system. And you can see uh, the uh, figures for the reactions there, well over a million. And we're now up to 1,800 plus deaths recorded by the government's own statistics. Uh, so a lot of important uh, information there for people. Uh, we just move on to this. Uh, of course, it's not only UK that's indicating huge problems with the vaccines. Uh, data has now been released in, a, in uh, the USA. Uh, headline here, Pfizer documents reveal over 1,200 vaccine deaths over a 90-day trial period uh, with Pfizer. So if the uh, problem was just appearing in UK, in UK we'd have uh, one opinion on, on the whole matter, but we're seeing it mirrored with similar problems in the USA. Um, Alex, uh, that takes us to uh, Eindhoven. 
Indeed, Mike. The fair city of Eindhoven, home to electronics giant Philips and uh, world-class football team PSV Eindhoven, very proud of itself because it's become something of a Dutch Silicon Valley. A triangle of cities around Eindhoven claim that they're of world significance. And as part of that, of course, they have top-class public service announcements capability. Uh, the local um, uh, broadcaster, Omru Brabant, if you bring the image on screen a, a moment, uh, just uh, before that video that we have queued up, Omru Brabant is the provincial uh, broadcaster, and they've interviewed a local resident in the city centre named Peter, uh, who he says is going crazy because of what he calls a, a re-education camp announcement. Uh, we'll play perhaps half of the uh, the clip that follows. What you'll hear is a bit of Dutch interspersed. You'll hear him use the word boxen, which is the Dutch word for speakers. He's gesticulating to a cluster of four speakers and another cluster of five uh, at the shopping centre, very audible from his balcony, telling people to keep safe in COVID times. I think we'll play out the... Um, First two English sections, the uh, quality of the Dunglish involved, and uh, Peter himself recognises that it's awful English, he calls it Steinkohl Engels, um, is such that they managed to get the first three words right, welcome to Eindhoven. You also hear people say, welcome in Eindhoven, over here. Uh, they get that right, but after that it's all a bit downhill, so let's listen to what Peter calls the re-education messaging of Eindhoven city centre shopping centre. Er hangen vier boxen aan deze kant, vijf boxen aan die kant. Ik werk veel thuis. Je hoort het door de ramen heen. To prevent the virus from spreading, we stay anderhalf meters from each other. Nou, ik word er persoonlijk gek van. Ik vind dit echt. Gentlemen, you lived in the Netherlands, both of you. You might know what the Dutch word anderhalf means, uh, but you don't normally hear it in Dunglish, do you? Even of the worst uh, variety. But that's what's being shouted through the city centre. We stay safe by staying anderhalf metres from each other, or did he even say one another? Um, anderhalf is the Dutch for uh, one and a half, because the Dutch have decided not to stay any number of feet away from each other, not even a round number of metres away, but it's uh, one and a half metres. And of course, they didn't bother to spend a Euro hundred euros getting this checked and recorded professionally. So there we go. It's uh, North Korea has come to the Netherlands. Uh, down a little way down the street, uh, down the road from Eindhoven, right on the Belgian border, is the small town of Veert. And here, a local paper is reporting that soldiers are wrestling people to the ground during an uh, exercise which happened a week ago in the town centre of Viet. Uh, we read from this and other outlets uh, that the new category of uh, non-sworn pseudo-police officers that every Dutch municipal council has, known as BOAs, uh, BOAs, were on hand to assure people, don't worry, this is an exercise, even though they could see some jiu-jitsu moves going down. And a lot of people, according to this and other Viet outlets, were uh, unconvinced and thought that there was really some kind of terrorist threat. So let's look at a bit of silent footage of what uh, this core participant in the uh, militarization of police in the EU and member of the EU Gen4, European Gendarmerie Force, the Netherlands, is doing on the streets. We can see clusters of squaddies lining up in this small town in the pedestrianised city centre, fanning out in a single file uh, with their uh, rifles held in the ready position. So. Um, uh, down dropped below the arm. Uh, we've got some volunteers to be arrested, uh, being uh, felt uh, up against what looks like the main church doors in Viet. 
We've got a police uh, van circling around in this integrated police military exercise. The squaddies go on patrol past what looks like the town hall. I haven't been to Viet, but that architecture looks reminiscent of the town hall. And here is the uh, scenario which has been mise en scène, as it were. Some some local youths who uh, uh, are dressed in, in uh, civvies, in shags, as they used to call them in the, the military, are there um, having a bit of a fisticuffs, a bit of a standoff with the soldiers. It's all, of course, a scenario. Uh, Outcome: the um, responses. The soldiers get a bit handy. They decide to kneel on the chap in a moment. There he is. Uh, he's been he's taken a tumble. I haven't seen whether they're using uh, tie wraps or some other kind of improvised handcuffs. Often squaddies are trained to do that because, of course, they don't go around with handcuffs. Uh, there we are. He's been chinned on the pavement and he's being restrained by. Uh, well, one one squaddy here with another one just behind him and a third-looking guard. Uh, here they are. They've got their uh, rifles out. And uh, there we are. It's been reported by non-stop updates uh, from, by WDG, the local paper for Viet. <laughs> so uh, I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that, but this, this is actually going on on the streets now in a Dutch town. Right. But it's just to reinforce, this was a, an exercise uh, so designed to what to to uh, normalize this type of behavior yeah. with, the, with the general public uh, and also to get the media coverage? Very much to get the media coverage. And I think not uh, much behind that is the idea of normalizing in people's minds that you are going to see soldiers out. There is no cause for concern. Of course, if people in the Netherlands or any other country go along with that, then if there really is a roundup, uh, I think in, a, in some American law enforcement bodies, they call it a shelter in place order. And anyone who disregards that uh, will be dealt with in that way. Then, of course, they'll stand by, won't they? Because they'll think, well, this is just another one of those exercises. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, well, let's uh, come back to the UK then. And uh, uh, the Telegraph, well, we talked about this on Friday. We've talked about it a number of times over the last uh, few weeks, the number of people dying from uh, sudden heart attacks and so on. Uh, but And uh, we were making the point that the media had preempted any possibility of uh, uh, accusations of it being linked to the vaccine at all by, uh, for example, the BBC's coverage that there are something like 80 or 90,000 uh, undiagnosed health uh, heart conditions amongst the young in the UK. Uh, well, this one uh, is uh, a scientific paper uh, being covered by The Telegraph. One in eight COVID hospital patients suffered heart damage, uh, and this is causing fears, according to The Telegraph, that the pandemic could fuel a crisis in cardiac services. British scientists are finding that the virus, considered primarily as a lung infection, is also targeting the heart. Uh, early results from national studies suggest thousands of people have been left with injuries to their hearts after being treated in hospital for COVID. Uh, it is feared uh, that findings could foreshadow an increased demand for hard-pressed NHS cardiac services. Uh, Colin Berry, a professor of cardiology and imaging at University of Glasgow, uh, which is involved in one study, found one in eight patients recovering from the virus showed signs of heart inflammation. Uh, and so it just happens to be uh, myocarditis and pericarditis, the, the two uh, adverse reactions that are that are normally associated with the uh, vaccine uh, are now, uh, there's an attempt now to uh, associate them with uh, COVID-19 itself, Brian. Uh, and of course, that uh, means that there's no possibility of identifying where the uh, underlying problem came from. And that is, that's why I think the MHRA is doing what it's doing, keeping talking about vaccine safety while doing absolutely no risk assessment into all of the adverse reaction data that they've corrected. It, it's a scam. It's a very obvious scam. 
Uh, which brings us to pizza, Alex. Yes, Mike, there's no cause for concern because Inran.it, which is a news and health and welfare website in Italy in the mainstream or old media mould, uh, informs us solemnly on WHO authority, no less, that uh, heart attacks and strokes, infarto e ictus in Italian, uh, can be triggered by pizza margarita, one of Italy's and the world's favourite favorite dishes. Uh, this is because a pizza margarita contains two grams of sodium. So uh, along with many other... Um, uh, recent uh, sudden uh, announcements that have come along as to what causes strokes and cardiac problems. That's the latest. Just one more example of, I could give you hundreds literally, of what the UK, sorry, what the Italian uh, old media is up to. The supposedly quality daily La Repubblica has posted uh, a headline here, which again has been screenshotted by an Italian viewer, uh, which if you look below the child, the masked child image, the headline states, COVID the serious systemic infection which attacks non-vaccinated children. Oh, there we are. That's the uh, uh, spin that's coming in from the Central and uh, Central European and Italian press in particular now, um, that if you don't jab your child, the child will suffer COVID. Um, we move on from that rather grave misinformation to uh, some more successes which have come in from the courts. Uh, people have been asking for some successes. In fact, in the last week, uh, a lot of viewers have said, what's this about Nuremberg 2.0 and Poland? I'm afraid I have to disappoint them. If they look at stories we're watching at the foot of the homepage, they will see it's not Nuremberg 2. It's simply that Rainer Fulmich of the German COVID extra-parliamentary uh, investigation has managed to speak in, in Poland for the first of any countries to a group of actual parliamentarians who wish to investigate the uh, effects of the jab and of the media. So that is a step forward, but it is certainly not a Nuremberg 2.0 yet. Uh, but from the United States, there are some interesting um, uh, court uh, results. And first, a British one, actually, from the High Court of England and Wales, the Queen's Bench Division, in fact. Uh, the Honourable Mr Justice Dove has issued a written verdict which had been long awaited in the case of Dr Sam or Samuel White one of the few young British GPs or family doctors who had used his social media to ask questions about the effectiveness of COVID jabs and the role of the National Health Service in promoting them. Of course, a disciplinary body within the General Medical Council, the body for uh, family doctors in Britain, uh, had suspended him uh, and had also issued him with a fundamentally illiberal ban on using his social media. Um, the uh, procedure against him went under the acronym of IOT, but if we put that back on screen, we see that uh, just Justice Dove has stayed this uh, in-house sentence by the BM, sorry, by the GMC for a while. The key paragraph is 24. He says in that, at the end of the paragraph, that uh, because uh, uh, Sam White's uh, human rights, this is the modern wording, of course, we would say inalienable rights, uh, to participate in, in discussion in society have been infringed by this IOT, by the General Medical Council. They, uh, they didn't have any thoughts to that in giving, his, uh, giving him his order. And therefore, it's, in my judgment, says Sir Justice Dove, an error of law and a clear misdirection in the decision-making process. Therefore, it was clearly wrong and cannot stand. That's not the full and final answer uh, in the case of Dr. Sam White, but it is a good step along the way. Sam White, as of last Friday, was still banned by Twitter, but he asked for this one-and-a-half message, one-and-a-half-minute message to be circulated, which we can now listen to, in which, towards the end, he makes some very important points about medical ethics. Hi everyone, I've been absent from um, video on social media from, for some time, as you may know. 
but I'm really pleased to announce that today we found out that I won my High Court appeal against the General Medical Council. It was found that the orders placed on me breached my human rights, including my right to be a part of uh, a debate on what's going on at the moment. I'd like to thank all of you so much for the kindness, love and support you've shown me over the last few months, um, and especially for your donations to our campaign. I'd also like to thank um, my legal team who are continuing to work on all the other projects around seven days a week, um, which is Francis Hoare and of course um, Philip Highland as well. I've always been proud to live in an open, diverse um, country, enjoy traveling the world. But what we've lacked lately is tolerance for diversity of thoughts and opinion. What we've had instead is scientism and not true science or debate, even a debate being allowed about science. And it's also time to return to science, but also medical ethics which has been long established and yet recently overlooked. Thank you, everyone. More to follow. Alex, he's looking a bit stressed, it has to be said. I was thinking the same, listening to the intonation and looking at the bags under his eyes, I can see that it's taken a toll on Dr. White. Uh, he's staying in the fight and crucially he has two very good lawyers. Uh, his solicitor or pre-trial lawyer is uh, Philip Highland at PJH Law and his barrister is Francis Hoare, I think well known to many of our viewers for uh, his contribution to many campaigns in the COVID era. Now, as for the solicitor, uh, Philip Highland, the principal at PJH Law, he has written to Amanda Pritchard, the Chief Executive Officer uh, of the NHS for England only. Uh, it was private and confidential when addressed to her, uh, but it has also been published. At the top of the page is the URL for those who wish to find this PDF directly. And he writes, uh, as soon as this uh, judgment by Justice Dove in the Administrative Division of the uh, Queen's Bench uh, was uh, was um, issued to say that on uh, Dr. White's instructions, he's going to follow up how the NHS in England has uh, persecuted him. Uh, the CEO of the NHS, a role which has changed, it's now Mrs. Pritchard, has not deigned to reply uh, to the 2nd of July 2021 letter, which was setting out that Dr. White was fully justified in what he was saying publicly, and has not deigned to reply to the concerns raised. Instead, instead, the National Health Service, and this is very true of many other Western uh, public health bodies, has chosen to mount a campaign of targeting my client, Dr. White, unfairly. These actions, says Philip Highland, speak of a certain culture within the executive leadership of the NHS and an unwillingness to act on evidenced and constructive feedback. People should find the uh, point by point letter uh, here itself uh, because we can't go through them all. But uh, everything that Dr. White said that he was taken to task for has been backed up. Uh, Philip Highland adds on behalf of Dr. White, given that it has now been five months since we last wrote and given that evidence has been accumulating that every single one of Dr. White's concerned are well founded it is incumbent on you to reply to all the points raised. And of course, he gives a proper uh, wetting signature, unlike people in the, the NHS and the government. He's not anonymous these days. Um, on to the United States. There are several federal level vaccine mandates breaking the US Constitution at the moment. Um, people are getting a bit confused with the weeds of these. There was a Missouri judgment. Uh, this one, as picked up by Becca News, is even perhaps more significant. It has nationwide scope, effectively. It's a Louisiana um, district court um, 
judgment. Uh, it's entitled Federal Vaccine Mandate Loses Big in Court. This relates to the mandate that everyone involved in the federal-funded uh, Medicare and Medicaid projects must be jabbed. There are other mandates ongoing for military uh, personnel and uh, for uh, federal contractors and the like. This case, th this time it's Judge Matthew Shelp who Becker News quite rightly reports, uh, absolutely nailed the irreconcilable legal and moral issues with the Biden administration's issuance of the unconstitutional federal vaccine mandates. A couple of quotations suffice. The first one comes up here, I think. Uh, this is Judge Shelp uh, overturning the Biden ma mandate, uh, in this case, Medicare and Medicaid jab mandate. The overwhelming lack of evidence likely shows that Medicare and Medicaid had insufficient evidence to mandate vaccination. Let's remember that mandate isn't law, of course. Mandate means an individual ordering you to do something. So a mandate or order, and in Britain and the Commonwealth, you often hear direction. Uh, these are not laws. I'm not saying you should ignore them willy-nilly, do so uh, well-informed and at your peril, but they are not law. Okay, so the CMS says Judge Shelp had insufficient evidence to mandate vaccination. Looking even beyond the evidence deficiencies, the lack of data regarding vaccination status and transmissibility in general is concerning. Indeed, says Judge Shelp, CMS, that's Medicare and Medicaid, states that the effectiveness of the jabs to prevent disease transmission by those jabbed is not currently known. He adds, no one questions that protecting patients and healthcare workers from contracting COVID is a laudable objective, but the court cannot in good faith allow Medicare and Medicaid to enact an unprecedented mandate that lacks a rational connection between the facts found and the choice made. And he adds that CMS failed, that's Medicare and Medicaid, failed to consider or reject, or they either failed to consider or they rejected obvious alternatives to a vaccine mandate. This is this is basic law stuff. Uh, you know, have you considered whether what you're ordering or attempting to bring about is necessary and the least invasive way of doing things? Uh, it, both in the US and a civil law jurisdiction, this is first and foremost, but it hasn't been done. For example, Judge Shelp says Medicare and Medicaid rejected the idea of testing and didn't give any evidence why they rejected it. And they just speak, spoke about scientific evidence, but they found that vaccination is more effective as an infection control measure. Uh, another court success in the United States follows. This one uh, is from, uh, sorry, the, the previous one was the Missouri judgment, I beg your pardon. Now comes the Louisiana um, Monroe Division Court. Western Division of Western District of Louisiana District Court. Um, this has been found on Scribed and it's been sent by a viewer. Uh, we're taking it at face value for now. This one is Jerry uh, Judge Terry A. Doherty or Doty. Uh, this is the one which is of national scope. Uh, it's uh, regarding states which are suing the federal government uh, because of the uh, Medicare and Medicaid vaccine mandate affecting their states. This was brought by the state of Louisiana and others against Medicare and Medicaid. If you tap that again, you will see that this is the um, uh, this is what uh, makes uh, this even more interesting than Judge Shelp's rulings. This one is of national scope. So we see on screen at the moment that the injunction is granted against the federal government on behalf of Louisiana and the other states that objected. And the final tap on that will show that this is not just something for the Western District of Louisiana. The scope of this injunction, says uh, George Doherty or Doty, will be nationwide except the 10 or so states, uh, the 10 states that are already under the preliminary injunction from Missouri, which is the one I covered previously. So things are proceeding apace, shall we say. Uh, back to the UK for the final one of our court reports. 
This one is from the fine town of Macarafelt in County Londonderry, where McNally solicitors proudly announced that they have mounted on behalf of a mother a legal challenge to COVID vaccination of healthy children. This regards a 13-year-old healthy child uh, who was cajoled at school behind the mother's back into being jabbed in Northern Ireland. Uh, Northern Ireland has the same legal system as England and Wales with very few differences. High Court in Belfast decisions are supposed to have comity with England and Wales decisions. So almost without any obstacle, if this case is won, it will be implementable in England and Wales, not in Scotland. Uh, so these pleadings, says McNally solicitors, seek the immediate suspension of the vaccine ro vaccination rollout and assert that these injections pose a risk to the lives of children because they rely upon evidence obtained from the government's own internal reporting structures as to vaccine harm within the UK and abroad. Sorry, the, the case relies upon evidence from the government's own internal reporting structures. So McNally's solicitor is, uh, is a bit like the UK column uh, in that they are using government data against the government. Okay, and then that takes us on to uh, this. Well, this, this happens to be one that I picked up, Mike, from the BMJ. Evidence is insufficient to back mand mandatory NHS staff ah. vaccination says House of Lords Committee. Okay. Um, so I, I've, just, I've just brought that up because we're now seeing quite a lot of things happening. Uh, uh, and this is very positive stuff, I think. Okay, well, I'm going to be going into that one in a little bit more detail in a minute. So, so That's fine. We, we got a duplicate there, but let's, uh, let's move on to this then. This is uh, from York and Scarborough Teaching Hospitals, uh, speaking of mandatory vaccination. Dear colleague, action required by Friday the 17th of December. Uh, 2021. Uh, thank you for your continued hard work and what we appreciate is an incredibly busy time for the NHS. Uh, the government has recently announced that all NHS staff working in roles, which mean they come into contact with parents, will be required to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by the 1st of April 2022, unless verified as medically exempt. Anyone who is yet to have his first their first dose will need to have that done by Thursday the 3rd of February 2022 in order to meet the deadline. The restrictions will apply regardless of role or frequency uh, until national guidance is made available on what is classed as patient contact. Uh, we will be working to communicate and support all unvaccinated staff. Uh, it is important you feel sufficiently informed to make the right decisions for you regarding uh, being vaccinated. If you've not been fully vaccinated by the 1st of April 2022, then your employment with the trust may have to end. Uh, the easiest option is to attend one of our vaccination hubs during the walk-in clinics below uh, to either start the vaccination process or have your second dose. You will be met by a professional, efficient and welcoming team who will be more than happy to answer any questions that you have. Uh, if you're currently unvaccinated, please notify your line manager by Friday the 17th of December 2021. A, if you're, not, if you're currently not fully vaccinated, uh, but you intend to do so before the 1st of April deadline, or B, if you are unvaccinated and have no intention of having the vaccinations, we can then support you to make an informed decision uh, and what that means for you. Uh, we know that getting the vaccine is the best way to protect against COVID-19. Uh, millions of people worldwide have been vaccinated safely and eff effectively protecting themselves against COVID and dramatically reducing the risk of serious illness. Um, so uh, that is uh, what's being sent out to um, certain NHS trusts. Um, so let's have a look at uh, this website then. This is uh, uh, nhs100k.com. Um, and uh, um, one of the things that they have, as you can see, is a page here 
Uh, I know it's appreciated that it's scrolling past very quickly. Uh, and in fact, I've only shown about 10% uh, of it there, uh, just of people uh, who are currently NHS workers um, put, holding up signs, mostly covering their faces um, and uh, making it clear how they feel about the, the mandate. Now, here's the, uh, the, the document, the, the uh, um, article in the BMJ that Brian just mentioned. Uh, evidence is insufficient to back mandatory NHS staff vaccination, says House of Lords Committee. Now, this is coming from uh, this uh, document here. It's coming from the Secondary Legislation Scrutiny Committee because this is uh, uh, the House of Lords scrutinising uh, a statutory instrument, in this case, the Draft Health and Social, Social Care 2008 brackets regulated activities brackets amendment brackets coronavirus brackets number two regulations 2021. Okay, so um, this committee is uh, raising, according to the article, several concerns about the proposed legislation to make vaccination against SARS-CoV-2 mandatory for all NHS staff in England, particularly whether the benefits of vaccinating the remaining 8% of NHS workers were proportionate and how the NHS would cope with losing 5.4% of staff who don't want to be vaccinated. On the 9th of November, England's Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid announced that all staff who work in health and social care settings regulated by the Care Quality Commission will have to be fully vaccinated by the 1st of April 2022. But in a report published on the 30th of November, the Secondary Legislation Scrutiny Committee uh, said that the benefit of increasing the protection from, vaccination, from vaccinating staff who had not yet taken up offers of the jab may be marginal uh, and that the government had failed to publish any contingency plans on how it would cope with the loss of staff who do not want to take the vaccine. Uh, the report said that of the 208,000 NHS staff who weren't currently vaccinated, 54,000 would, would take up the vaccine under the law uh, and 126,000 would leave their jobs. Uh, and so the article says, given that the legislation is anticipated to cost £270 million in additional recruitment and training costs and major disruption to the health and care provision at the end of the grace period, very, long, uh, very strong evidence should be provided to support this policy choice. The Department for Health and Social Care has not provided such evidence. Um, so... Uh, the committee also criticised the Department uh, for Health and Social Care for failing to include in the legislation practical detail about how expressions such as face-to-face -face or otherwise engaged would be applied. Uh, and Alex, this is a this is a fairly big problem uh, that we have continuing legislation being rolled out with no definitions in place for many of the terms that are absolutely key to understanding what the legislation might mean for the for anybody. This is a problem of a whole generation of parliamentary clerks, uh, the drafters of bills who have been politicised to a large extent. Uh, any traditional statute would say for the purposes of this act, A means A, B means B, C means C. If you don't do that, then you're going to have to leave, by definition, you're going to leave judges and juries, particularly judges who jump in here, uh, to define in practice in case law what things mean. And of course, they will give the widest possible scope rather than the narrowest possible scope. It's the opposite of traditional English law. It is, of course, all by design. And this scrutiny committee in the House of Lords is the very same one that, as we reported a few days ago, is in warning in terms that we are losing our democracy because of the extensive use of these ministerial edicts or ukases, which are dressed up in our system as statutory instruments, which sounds nice and boring. Yes, indeed. Now, let's, sorry, 
No, it was fine. It's okay, fine. let's bring uh, Professor Sarah Gilbert on screen then. And uh, she is from Oxford University, one of the developers of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and uh, well, she is uh, tonight delivering the 44th Richard Dimbleby lecture. And uh, that's going to be shown on the BBC tonight. Uh, and uh, so what's she saying? Uh, the next one, uh, the next pandemic uh, could be worse. It could be more contagious or more lethal or both. It definitely could be. Uh, and uh, she says the advances that we've made and the knowledge that we've gained must not be lost. Uh, so what is she really after here? Uh, we can't allow a situation where we've gone through all we've gone through and then find that the enormous economic losses we have sustained mean that there's still no funding for pandemic preparedness. Ah, this is actually funding for her job and her colleagues' jobs is what she's actually campaigning for. Just as we invest in armed forces and intelligence and diplomacy to defend against wars, uh, we must invest in people, research, manufacturing and institutions to defend against pandemics. Uh, what's interesting about this, Mike, is that the MHRA in its board meetings is also bellyaching that they're worried about the cash flow. They've got the odd 15 million stashed away, but they're going to spend that. But they are talking about the fact that uh, in the future, they're a little bit worried about their funding streams. Yes. Uh, now, Alex, very briefly, uh, let's head over to Ireland and masks. If you think or the viewers think that the BBC is bad in its COVID pushing and we've shown enough evidence that it is, how about over in Dublin where the public service broadcaster Radio Telefish Aaron RTE has put uh, a, a programme out on daytime TV with uh, this still which has been taken from it, if you want to bring that up, uh, a still of a baby or a doll in fact fortunately uh, having cloth pulled over its face, taut around the face and behind the ears, uh, which also blinds the baby. It's not just over mouth, mouth and nose. This is an educational doll. And uh, we can see actually from the logo, which primetime show on RTE one, uh, the equivalent of BBC one, uh, this was shown on. And I've deliberately, because of the proportions of the screen, kept the tweet with the header throughout this. So you can see bringbacknormal.ie's comments on this uh, as we listen to it. And children learn through play. It's how they make sense of challenging life experiences. And this introduction of masks is exactly one of those. But calm, clear, consistent messaging is key. And being able to put the mask on Ruby and take it up and see it's still Ruby under there allows yeah. me just to play with it. So that's kind of for younger children than nine-year-olds. Oh, absolutely. Some nine-year-olds. It really okay. developmental age over chronological. The other thing I'd say is see your little Q-tip here. Something that, because so many children are heading into PCR testing and everything with these numbers, is that we would also play at home with our tickle test and doing uh, Q-tip testing so that we normalize yeah. it and sort of demystify that whole thing yeah. where I might put a mask on and be the person in the, you know, the outfit you're, they're going to see up there and go, okay, and tilt your head and here's, oh, it's all done. You're very good oh, just to play with it. And don't forget our little kids who aren't wearing masks are now going to see not only their um, teachers and adults, they're maybe yeah, seeing siblings and yeah. other school children. So even though they're not wearing them, it is important to normalize them and even get your little child friendly kind of and this one has a nice um little I'm, I'm just going to call it a pipe cleaner but you know one of those little bendy bits yeah. at the top to encourage that kind of and we squeeze the at the nose. top for we that nice tight bit. Uh, we've got
It is, as bringbacknormal.ie quoted when putting out that clip, a sign of mass hysteria and mass psychosis. But a lot of Irish people, of course, have realised this. And the following brief clip is taken from a piece to camera delivered out on the streets after dark, uh, because it's winter months now, of course. And uh, this is uh, a talking head for RTE uh, giving the COVID narrative. But in the background, in the second half of this 40-second clip, you can hear the bold and repeated message, RTE is the virus. Get to a position of uh, pulling back from where it was two weeks ago. There was an effort made and it did stabilise case numbers. But he did say that with the Omnifon uh, variant, it has left too much at stake. And the government does not, at this point, uh, feel it is, you know, in any way uh, prudent or wise to... Uh, to move away from those COVID restrictions. He did do what he had uh, proposed before. He did say, uh, as he has said many times in the past, he made an appeal for the country to pull together and to get through this. And it appears we are facing another Christmas. All right, well, we might try and come back to I couldn't possibly uh, commend these gentlemen, but uh, I can't hide my facial expression as we report this. Finally, from the Republic of Ireland, one of our Irish viewers wasn't con convinced that the HSE poster we showed uh, last week was genuine. Um, I will suspend judgment on that. Uh, we always make clear whether we are certain about things or whether they are first, re first look reports, as it were. But this one is certain, and look at the, at the arrow highlighting this. I know the type is small, but the HSE um, and uh, the, the rest of the Irish public authorities have put this out now. Face coverings must be worn here, stay safe, protect each other. And at the bottom, you can see a new box uh, ringed in red that, that face masks are not actually safe for all kinds of people. And the type's too small to read, but I think it also says under 13s. So there is some level of posterior covering starting to go on. Up across in North Northern Ireland, uh, we have uh, something that uh, last week I reported is happening in Dublin, but it's happening in Belfast as well now. Earning civic dollars, says Belfast City Council on its own website, is a walk in the park. A new civic dollars mobile phone app developed with support from Belfast City Council and get this, the devolved Department of Justice, not health, means that people can now earn rewards for the time they spend in their local parks and open spaces. Let's take a look at that in just a few seconds. Here uh, we have the very healthy Naomi Long on the right, dressed in black, the Justice Minister of the Stormont Government. Uh, quoted right at the moment is the lady in the middle holding the big dummy mobile phone, who's the Lord Mayor of Belfast. She says that this Dollars app also provides a promotional platform for local businesses, services and events. And she says the insights we'll gather uh, down at the Ministry of Justice and the City Council will help us to better understand how people use green spaces, blah, 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 blah. And Naomi Long is quoted as saying, effectively managing public open spaces, ah, I wonder how public they are now, is a key element in developing a safe community where we respect the law and each other. Um, I'm not sure that this is just about uh, getting people used to digital currencies. Uh, I think there's something more social and nudging going on there. Uh, well, the social credit uh, would be a, a more appropriate term, perhaps, Alex. Uh, that would seem to be it. So we can add Dublin and Belfast to the list that I compiled, which, to my knowledge, also consists of Malawi, where people are told to use their mobile phones to take a walk and get some brownie points. Yes. OK, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And if you are watching the UK Column news for free, uh, and reading our content on the website, then uh, uh, your support is very much needed and appreciated. Uh, also do share 
our material on the various platforms. Excellent. Well, a big thank you. Um, the David Noakes Appeal Fund is now over 35,000. It's still going up. Can we get it towards that 50,000 pound target that the family wanted? I think the answer is we can. So if you can share this uh, with other people, uh, we'd be very grateful. Remember, of course, that David Noakes uh, in prison in horrible conditions uh, for trying to use GC MAF in order to help people with cancer, uh, utterly victimized by the MHRA, the same organization that's working with the uh, drug companies and the vaccine companies and recording the adverse effects and deaths of those uh, vaccines. So the hypocrisy of the MHRA, uh, truly incredible. Uh, just want to say a quick well done to everybody that turned up in Belfast for uh, the Freedom Rally on Saturday. There were others taking place around the uh, country, including in Plymouth. Uh, but uh, I want to say thanks to Greg Sharkey here uh, who give a big shout out to Patrick and also to the UK column. Uh, very much appreciated. Yeah, excellent. Well, we'll just uh, pop this one up very briefly because we've covered it in the main part of the news. But I just want to say thank you to everyone that sends us material that they think is important. And many people had picked up on uh, what was happening with Dr. Sam White. So that's really excellent. But this was sent in to us and uh, very interesting indeed. It's Alison Pearson, Telegraph journalist. Uh, uh, apprentice mother, uh, words nut, but uh, essentially she got interested in a tweet that uh, Denise Welsh had put out, uh, where she Denise Welsh was saying that she had been able to see her father, uh, but she had to force her way basically through the regulations to make that happen. This was in a care home? Uh, in a hospital, I, I believe, uh, Mike. So at the top here is Alison's uh, thing. She's saying that's the point. At Matt Hancock was shagging his aid while hundreds of thousands couldn't visit dying parents or see spouses of 50 years in care homes. So interesting that a Telegraph columnist is picking up on this agenda. They're beginning to see it. Uh, we've got uh, Julia Hartley Brewer here uh, warning in a big red block, if we lock down again this winter, then we will lock down every winter forever. Do you want your life back or not? It's time for you to speak out now. Well, what a what a wonderful um, effort. And I think people need to get onto her Twitter page and thank her for the fact that she's pushing out a really hard message. And if we just jump back to Denise Welsh, um, here she is, and this was the article for the for the Daily Express, uh, written by the health editor Lucy Johnson, and she says, "Never again will anyone try to keep me from those I love, especially those in charge who have broken every single rule uh, they forced us to obey." And then she's put a copy of the article from the Express, um, showing uh, her with her father. Now this is a tragic story. Uh, but I'm going to say that Denise actually is very lucky because so many people are not and they've been withheld from their own relatives. And if we bring you on to this one, this is Denise Welsh again. She's saying, thank you, Kate. I was told these stats from those working in Newcastle hospitals. Now, what's this about? Let's bring it up on the screen. Uh, basically, uh, Katie Robinson had put out a tweet to Kat McKinnell, uh, who I believe is BBC. You've just said on BBC that hospitals are overrun with COVID. Here are some facts for you 
from the government website. You don't want to be accused of spreading misinformation. And then in the detail underneath the government's own stats, three people with coronavirus went into hospitals on the 28th of November. So what's this story about the BBC lying and saying that there was a pandemic in the hospitals? Uh, but it goes back through to Denise Welsh, who says that she's also been told that the stats sorry, also been told of the stats by people working in Newcastle hospitals. No problem at all, but the BBC clearly putting out misinformation. And I think uh, this one uh, originally came from Alex, but uh, it's uh, Roland Chandler. He said, I just realised that at GB News and at UK Column will be the death of the lying mainstream media, ITV News, Sky, GMB, who we know are financed by Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Adios. And uh, this was uh, another one that people were picking up on. Jeremy Vine saying his first jab was AstraZeneca a breeze, second jab AstraZeneca a doddle, booster jab Moderna on Saturday, yikes, chills, migraine, fever, aches, pains, loss of appetite, basically feeling awful for 24 hours. And then he says at the bottom, no complaints. But what is the science of that? Well, of course, what he is doing in this tweet is complaining, and he's complaining because he's just discovered that the science we're being given is a complete and utter lie. So I think these were pretty interesting. And also some other astute people looked at the Sunday Times. I believe this was front page. Doctors and nurses vent anger as unvaccinated COVID cases delay vital operations. The NHS has a backlog of 5.8 million waiting for surgery and specialists were increasingly frustrated at how the unvaccinated have left them unable to tackle it. But of course, we have no idea uh, of whether this is a genuine article or it's one of these government prompted articles. So thank you for the information. Keep sending it in. Keep doing your own analysis of what the government's telling us. Uh, Alex, we're very, very behind here. So if you could just be very, very quick on this. The uh, great thing about UK Column is we have viewers from every nationality. So a Slovene viewer did exactly what I hoped someone would do and find the name of the uh, uh, reported head nurse of the university clinic in Ljubljana, Slovenia, who has been widely reported as talking about three different kinds of vials. We reported and verified all we could up to accurately uh, knowing that the that verifying that the subtitles were accurate on the video of the lady speaking in front of a haystack background. We managed to find that that had been uploaded in August to bit shoot at the uh, the earliest or the latest uh, but thanks to the Slovene viewer we now know more um, the viewer says last Wednesday we mentioned this high-ranking nurse of the UKC here doesn't stand for UK column but University Clinic in Ljubljana allegedly stepping down and revealing three different kinds of uh, vials were being used remember one was supposed to be a carcinogen and the other was a saline placebo Finally, the viewer tracked down that the woman's name is Vera Kanaletz. She is indeed uh, outspoken in that video. She didn't have COVID vi vaccine vials in her hands. Well, you don't need to speak Slovene to, to know that, but it's good that she reinforced this. Here's the key thing. She has been in retirement for 10 years. And the viewer says, I find it sad that people make such misinformation messages. To be clear, the misinformation was the brief template message that went round without a source attribution on it on on social media. The, this is something we often see when it's foreign news. The subtitles may be accurate, but the reporting that goes alongside it in English with no source 
no author and no date, is the inaccuracy. So Vera Kanaletz has, on the 24th of November, been interviewed and posted it to her own Facebook page at 3 minutes 15 into this video, if people can find it, saying, uh, I'm afraid I was taken out of context. So we can put part of that story to bed. And this is exactly what the UK Column Network, Network is for and why we sometimes, with care, report stories that we haven't sourced every bit of, particularly when there's an overseas component, because our viewers will do some of it for us. Um, okay, let's move on then quickly to uh, to this. Uh, this, of course, is the uh, Police Crime uh, Sentencing and Courts Bill. Uh, it is uh, currently back in committee in the House of Lords. Um, I just thought, just to remind everybody, the, the scope of this bill, we were talking about this on Friday and talking about the, the, the whole business of sort of Uber bills uh, coming into UK Parliament, something that the United States is quite familiar with, but but we haven't really sort of seen to this degree before. Uh, so uh, I just thought I would read this uh, so that everybody understands the scale of the thing. So this uh, makes provision about the police uh, and the other emergency workers to make provision about collaboration between authorities to prevent and reduce serious violence, to make provision about offensive weapons, homicide reviews, to make provision for new offences and for the modification of exist existing offences, to make provision for the powers of the police and other authorities for the purposes of preventing, detecting, uh, investigating or prosecuting crime uh, or investigating other matters, to make provision about the maintenance of public order, to make provision about the removal, storage and disposal of vehicles, to make provision in connection with driving offences, to make provision about cautions, to make provision about bail and remand, to make provision about sentencing, detention, release, management and rehabilitation of offenders, to make provision about secure 16 to 19 academies, uh, borstals they might have been called at one point, uh, to make provision for and in connection with procedures before courts and tribunals and for connected purposes. And Alex, what really staggers me about this is just the scope of it. Um, and then you've got to ask, um, how is, you know, how is any MP supposed to decide to vote against it when there's probably a lot in it, which would be very useful. Um, and therefore, they tend to just ignore the rather large swathes of pretty draconian uh, legislation in there. Well, this is it. It's it's um, uh, candy floss and ice cream, isn't it? There will be jam tomorrow for all if you vote for this. Don't bother to read the 150 sections. In the US, they have a longer history of this going back to the Patriot Act. Uh, now, the key here in any English-speaking jurisdiction is that this, it's called the will of Parliament. That that's, that's what is going on in these headers. Judges and juries, if juries are still allowed to look in, are told the will of Parliament is what brought this bill to life. And that's why in questionable cases where a law is being questioned in court with a defendant, you're supposed to look at these headers to see what the will of Parliament is. That's the official version. The real will of Parliament is found in Hansard. When people say, my lords or my fellow members of, or Mr. Speaker in the House of Commons, this seems draconian and we cannot possibly be meaning to criminalise X. And in the US, it's the congressional record, particularly in the Senate. So that's where people should be looking. The growth of this fluff in the bill is so that people get their PR soundbites and don't look in Hansard and the congressional record where the real will of Parliament is. OK, so just to put this in a bit of context, uh, these are the, the four acts that we're calling the uh, dictatorship um, as it's being formed. Uh, the first is the Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act, because that is now an act of parliament. It was passed last year. And this, of course, gives many, many government agencies uh, the right to break the law. 
then we have the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. Uh, we have the Online Safety Bill, which is coming up very, very soon. And we have the Counter State Threats Bill, uh, which will effectively uh, amend the Official Secrets Act and will effectively make it uh, uh, impossible for any whistleblower uh, to speak out. But anyway, the Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Bill, I'm really delighted to say that uh, many of the campaign groups, and thank you very much to Stand Up X for sending me this, uh, many of the campaign groups are now finally getting onto this and there are going to be some demonstrations taking place uh, over the next uh, few days. So beginning on Wednesday the 8th of December at 1pm uh, in Parliament Square, uh, we've got uh, a demonstration uh, for, against the uh, Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill um, and uh, this leaflet making the point about what it will do. Um, and then Monday the 13th of December, 1pm, another demonstration and also Wednesday the 15th of December at 1pm, uh, another demonstration. So uh, there will be, uh, uh, if you want to find out more, have a look at the Stand Up X website. Um, but I'm really glad to see a much broader uh, group of campaigners getting out against this particular piece of legislation. Yeah, and following the analysis is, is the key thing. The information as to what's happening, what's bringing this dictatorship in is hidden in plain sight. We need to spread all of that detail to as many people as possible. Yes. Um, so uh, the next Biden-Putin summit has been announced. Uh, that will take place virtually. So they're not actually going to meet as they did in Geneva earlier in the year. Uh, this will be uh, an online event. Uh, here's Yuri Ushakov, uh, the Kremlin spokesman, saying we have a concrete date for this and the date and time for this video conference will this take place tomorrow. Um, and uh, uh, he went on to say the agenda is obvious. It will be an important contact as a follow-up to the Geneva talks. Uh, they'll be talking about bilateral affairs, pressing international issues, including Afghanistan, Iran, the intra-Ukrainian crisis in Libya. Syria may be touched upon if the conversation goes that way. Uh, and uh, he went on to say uh, to complain somewhat about uh, about NATO. And really, uh, I'm going to ask Alex to comment on this again in a second. But uh, he's made the point here that both the Soviet Union and Russia were given verbal assurances that NATO's military structures would not advance eastward. Uh, and he said both. Uh, sorry, that's a repeat. Uh, he said there's an urgent need for us to be provided with appropriate guarantees as it cannot go on like this. Uh, and Putin again uh, saying, you know, making, reinforcing the idea that as far as he's concerned, this is a red line. Uh, and Biden saying, well, actually, I don't care about red lines anymore. Uh, so uh, if he ever did. Uh, so here's Anthony Blinken, the uh, uh, US Secretary of State, who said that uh, uh, President Biden will stand up resolutely against any reckless or aggressive actions that Russia may pursue. pursue. I think the most important thing that President Putin seems to discount or ignore is that NATO is a defensive alliance. This is the US position. NATO is a defensive alliance. Uh, therefore, Russia has nothing to worry about. It shouldn't be making all these complaints about uh, NATO attempting to uh, attract uh, the Ukraine in. Uh, the only aggression that we've seen in this space in recent years, unfortunately, has been from Russia, uh, first Georgia and then Ukraine. And these sentiments were echoed in an, article, in a, uh, an interview that uh, uh, Blinken did uh, on Saturday, I think it was, with uh, uh, Euronews. Uh, and uh, that's available on the Euronews website, but also on the uh, US Department of State uh, website. 
And just in time for all this, for this announcement of this meeting and for, for the, the, the continuing rhetoric, uh, of course, the Washington Post over the weekend had this article, uh, Russia planning massive military offensive against Ukraine involving 175,000 troops, US intelligence warns. And Alex, uh, unnamed intelligence sources uh, have uh, given uh, the Washington Post the the full SP, and uh, they are saying 175,000 troops are ready to be rolled in against the Ukrainian border. There's going to be an offensive earlier, early in the new year. This was picked up by just about every mainstream media uh, organ, including the Financial Times and others in the UK. Uh, and uh, we just have this continuing uh, battering of uh, the Ukraine drum. Yes, the last we knew, Mike, it was World War Three is scheduled for Monday and there's 96,000 Russian troops waiting. And now it's World War Three has been postponed to January and there's 175,000 Ruskies on the border. Uh, what to say? We have a stream of Russian speakers from various countries continuing to take us for task to task for being supposedly too pro-Putin and too pro-Lukashenko. Whoever was in power in the Kremlin would be saying the things that Putin is now saying, that there are certain red lines. So uh, it's not here on a slide, but people can go and find it on militarytimes.com. The headline is Putin demands NATO guarantees not to expand eastward. You referred to this, Mike. It does very much seem that James Baker, as US Secretary of State, did tell Shevardnadze and Gorbachev that, they, that NATO wouldn't expand eastwards in 1989, completely broken as a promise. So Putin's now mentioned this at a Kremlin ceremony greeting foreign ambassadors saying that in its dialogue with the United States and allies, Russia insists on specific agreements to exclude any further NATO move eastward. Eastward, that can only mean Ukraine. As regards Blinken saying that there has been uh, only Russian violence in the in that part of the world for the last few years or aggression, um, a Swiss diplomat, Heidi Tagliavini, uh, reported to the UN after the 2008 South Ossetia war that Georgia started the shooting. And this has never been accounted for in the West. So um, let's look beyond the personality of Putin, love him or hate him or somewhere in between, and think about whoever was in power in Russia and what they would do at this point. Yes, indeed. And then just to end, uh, Alex, uh, we've got uh, Norway Foreign Minister says, government considering limiting NATO deploy uh, deployments in Russia's vicinity. Is that realistic? <laughs> No, probably not. Now, it's only Sputnik, of course, from Russia uh, that has picked up on this, but it is a domestic Norwegian interview that we're talking about here. The Norwegian Foreign Minister Anniken Kvitveldt, uh, who around the time that Liz Truss was posing in a tank in Estonia, uh, was talking about her concerns that the British and Americans shouldn't be going uh, gung-ho and hoo-ya too near to Norway's uh, Arctic border with Russia. So in this uh, interview with Verdensgang in Norway, uh, whether uh, her concern to build relations with Russia means that she wants British and American ships and planes not to be in the Russian border zone of this NATO member state, Norway. Anna Kvitveld, the foreign minister, replied to her own journalists in Norway that she wants to talk to Britain and America about it to protect Norway's interests. Quite an admission there. And if you tap that again, we will see that... Um, uh, there was a recent Lavrov Kvitveld summit, uh, which has been reported by the same um, uh, Norwegian outlet I just mentioned. Uh, so they're talking here about her concerns about Russia, NATO. Lavrov, of course, recently said we don't have a relationship with NATO, but we do have friendly relations with Norway. Yet another country that's peeling off the Anglo-American axis to some extent as a piece of realpolitik. And I would notice in closing that unlike her uh, counterpart, uh, Britain's Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, Anderkren Kvitveld does manage to keep her documents the right way up when talking to Sergei Lavrov. Yes, yes, okay.
Well, look, I guess we're going to have to leave it there for today. Indeed. So we'll say a big thank you to Alex Thompson for joining us. A big thank you to all our audience, wherever you are, UK or worldwide. And uh, just to reiterate that uh, if you want to see UK Column expand in 2022, which is our objective, and you're not a subscriber, please think about subscribing. Uh, we can only do what we do with your help and support. And lastly, just a reminder, many people say to us, yes, but what can we do? Uh, we've given you in the slide on MHRA the question for MHRA, and that is, where is the quantitative risk assessment which shows that the yellow card vaccine adverse reaction data is not caused by the vaccines themselves? That is the question that we need asked, and uh, we need the MHRA to come clean and provide the data to show that those vaccines are safe. So if you'd like to know what to do, pen to paper, email, tweets, visit your MPs, ask that very simple question. The MHRA says the vaccines are safe. Where is the evidence which supports that claim? We're, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes on the main live stream for some extra. But otherwise, okay. we'll see you on uh, Wednesday at 1 p.m. Indeed. Bye-bye. Yeah.